This is The Guardian. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. A code red for humanity. Tonight we begin with the wake-up call from the United Nations on what they call the unequivocal impact humans are having on our planet. Emissions of greenhouse gases need to peak within the next three years if we're to stave off the worst effects of climate change. And even then, we'd still need new technology to suck carbon dioxide out of the skies by the middle of the century. We have a choice, collective action or collective suicide. It is in our hands. Warnings about the climate crisis are becoming increasingly desperate. Nearly half of humanity is already at risk from floods, droughts, extreme storms and wildfires. And with temperature records tumbling and parts of the world literally burning around us, the situation today can feel terrifying enough, while the future can seem downright apocalyptic. But activists and scientists will tell you that climate doomism is just as dangerous as climate denial. Which is why today I'm speaking to Caroline Hickman, a psychotherapist and researcher who focuses on eco-anxiety. How can we process the way that we feel about the greatest threat humanity has ever faced? And can we turn feelings of climate doom into something positive? From The Guardian, I'm Anand Jagatia, sitting in for Madeleine Findlay. And this is Science Weekly. So Caroline, first of all, could you just tell me what eco-anxiety or climate anxiety actually is? This is not a new thing that we're struggling with. It's been around for many years. But in the past, perhaps it was confined to scientists, environmentalists, now what we're seeing is this is going into the wider public and particularly amongst younger generations and external reality the world is warming up ice is melting things are getting worse as that increases we're seeing a simultaneous increase in anxiety but also depression and fear 
But it is an emotionally healthy response to the reality of what's going on in the world. So those fears make sense. And it's often the fact that people don't seem to be responding quickly enough, which makes that anxiety worse. I've been feeling like this, especially over the past few days. I mean, last week we had the hottest ever temperatures recorded in the UK. There were fires. It's scary to see this stuff on the news. And we talk about climate anxiety, but I feel like my emotions are all over the place. It kind of ricochets almost several times a day between hope and despair and between anger and grief. Is that also something that's wrapped up within climate anxiety? And is that something that you see in the patients that, that you speak to? Absolutely. I'm so glad you said that. We've got the term eco-anxiety or climate anxiety. It's a bit late to change that. Often anxiety is the first emotional response because we feel the threat of what's going on. But it can often then move into a depression, a despair, hope and hopelessness, wanting people to save us, fantasies of rescue and apocalyptic fantasies. There's also grief and sadness about what we've done. The trick is not to get stuck in any one of those emotions and not to judge those emotions either and start calling some of them good and some of them bad. Actually, in relation to the climate crisis, these more difficult feelings can actually be really productive and really helpful. We only feel them because we care about what's going on in the world around us. I really think that's powerful, actually, how you can reframe the way you feel into something to be proud of, actually, and something that shows that you care. In my job, among the people that I have to speak to for work and also in my social network, I think that climate anxiety seems relatively common. But is that the case more widely? Do we have any data on how common it is on a global level? In the quantitative research that we did last year, this was with 10,000 young people around the world, aged 16 to 26. We found eight out of 10 children and young people felt that climate change was threatening people on the planet. That's a significant number. And we found out of that number, 45% were reporting a negative impact on their daily functioning. When we asked young people about how they felt about the future, three quarters told us the future was frightening. And I think we need to pay attention to that because it's a sign of the young people in the UK taking this seriously. And the reality is, is that there's a lot of dismissal and a lot of disavowal. Only 27% of young people thought that governments were taking their concerns seriously. So there is an abandonment and a betrayal here that is being felt by the younger generations because, you know, they have this in front of them for their whole lives. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words, and yet I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering, people are dying, entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you!
So, Caroline, if, as you've said, these emotions are a normal or a healthy way of responding to what's happening in the world right now, where does that leave us in terms of how we deal with them? Because on the one hand, if we just block them out, then we're in denial about how bad the situation is. But if we kind of get taken over by them, then we might lose hope completely. So how do we sort of strike that balance between those two extremes? Well, the first thing I always say to people is you're not crazy, because I think we all have this little voice in our heads that worries that maybe we're overreacting or underreacting to things. So people need validation. And you need to know you're not on your own with this. We shouldn't need to feel okay all the time. But equally, you don't want to get stuck in the not feeling okay. And if somebody else is dealing with this through minimizing their feelings and saying, oh, it's okay, the government will save us, technology will save us, you don't have to feel the same. And you shouldn't feel ashamed of feeling differently. And you need to say to them, well, I accept that's the way you feel. I don't. I feel like this. How can we have a conversation together? The important thing is that we keep communicating with each other because as things are getting worse, we need to wake people up to this. And sometimes it's just hard to comprehend the enormity of what we're dealing with and just face how stark the reality could be. Do you have any advice for people who might just be feeling a bit burnt out by thinking about this all the time? What you need is a life of relative balance where you give it attention, you make it a conscious concern, but you also take time out. And you take time out where you play, you rest, you recover, you think about other things, and you kind of take a radical hope approach to this. We are in trouble and we may be going off a cliff as humanity, but we're going to go down fighting and we're going to do everything we can do. And we are going to remember that there is joy, there is pleasure, there is wonderful stuff in the world. And we're not going to just focus on that and go into absolute denial of the awful stuff that's happening. We need both. And I know that in your work, both as a researcher and as a psychotherapist, you spend a lot of time talking to young people about the climate crisis. For someone who's listening, maybe they have kids and they want to talk to somebody young about this topic. What's a good way to go about that without making it just absolutely terrifying, but walking this tightrope between optimism and doomism? You wouldn't dream with your children of not talking with them about why mummy and mummy or mummy and daddy or daddy and daddy are getting separated. Even if they're three years old, you'd find a way to talk with them in a way that they could understand, they could absorb, assimilate, make sense of, because they would know something was going wrong. You would need to find a way to communicate with them about this. It's exactly the same. We need to normalize this so that we're talking with children from a young age about this is what's happening in the world. This is part of our world. We can't pretend it's not happening. We need to do what we can. And you're not on your own. I have a responsibility. I'm here with you. And what might that look like on a day-to-day -day level? Like, what are some practical things that people might be able to do? 
So what you need to do is make space to talk about this on a regular basis, but talk about it in a way where the child is given some power, some choice. And what you can do is come up with all these different ways that you as a family can take action and let the child be part of that decision-making, such as what milk do we buy? Where do we go on holiday? Help the child to actually take action on these things and the child will feel less helpless and less powerless. Caroline, talking about the climate crisis and how it makes us feel and what our future might look like isn't easy. It can be really difficult to wrestle with these emotions and to not end up just feeling helpless. So is there a way that we can channel what we might be feeling into something positive, into action? Yeah, don't do it on your own. Number one, you cannot save the planet on your own. But collectively, you can take action and collectively, you can listen to other people and they can listen to you. And that helps you feel better. This is a social collective problem. Sometimes, of course, people do want a bit of individual psychological support. Perfectly reasonable. But then you need to find groups. You need to find community of belonging. Number two, find the attitude that you need to say, I may not have wanted to be having to deal with this, who would want to deal with this, but it is the reality. So I need to find the courage, find the imagination, find the emotional intelligence to do it. And people may have heard this before, right? That you can't do it on your own, that you need collective action. But sometimes I think it's difficult to know what that first step should be, right? Where do you begin? Have you got any tips on where to start? I often talk about this in terms of you need internal activism as well as external activism. So the internal activism is listening to podcasts, mindfulness, giving yourself permission to feel all of these things. External activism, find a group, any group, whether it's an activist group like Extinction Rebellion or one of the other groups taking action. There's lots of groups of young people, Fridays for Future. There's the UKYCC, the United Kingdom Youth Climate Council. There's local wildlife trusts. All of these groups have got ways of enabling people and supporting people and taking positive action in their neighbourhood, whether it's lobbying governments, whether it's going to COP, whether it's writing letters. There will always be things that you can do that are within your comfort zone, but can also push you into taking action that makes you feel good about yourself. And that can mean living your life more closely aligned with your values living your life in ways that make you feel proud of who you are and how you relate to other people. So you might not be able to save everything and everyone, but you can feel good about doing that. Caroline, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and it's also been incredibly useful. Thank you so much. Thank you for asking me. I really appreciate it. Thanks again to Caroline Hickman. You can find links to some of the groups that she mentioned on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com, where you can also, of course, find all of our reporting on the climate crisis. And that's it for today. The producer was me, Anand Jagatia, with additional help from Anoa Abika Mensah, 
The sound design was by Rudy Sagadlo, and the executive producers were Lorna Stewart and Max Anderson. We'll be back on Thursday. See you then. This is The Guardian. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.